All right, eyes right here. We're going to pray before we get ready to go to children's church, all right? Let's pray. Lori, thank you for this time where we get to learn about you, Jesus, where we get to spend time with friends and our wonderful teachers. May we learn more about you. May we have fun. And Lord, we ask that you would bless our teachers, bless our parents, and may, Lord, you fill us up with wisdom and peace and goodness and kindness. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this time where we get to learn. And we pray this, and everybody said, amen. All right, we'll see you all in just a little bit. All right. I like that announcement. That was nice. I like the, uh, the visual and the audio. That was nice. I'll spice things up for us a little bit. Um, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Fabulous. Uh, it's an honor and pleasure to bring God's word to you. Um, as we begin our journey looking at our text this morning, I'm going to ask you uh, one question. And this part is actually going to be just a little bit interactive, so I need your participation. So here's the question, and if you will, throw me out an answer. So here's the question. What negative claim or claims have you heard people say about Christians or Christianity? What negative things have you heard people say about Christians or Christianity as a whole? Hypocrites. Yes, hypocrites. Okay, what else? Self-righteous. Sure. Narrow-minded. Absolutely. What else? Judgmental. Absolutely. Irrelevant. It's a crutch. Yeah, that's Jesus. Yeah, we just got to lean on this. Yeah, we don't really need him. Sure. Intolerant. You're, you're exactly right. We've heard these things. People say these things about Jesus. They say about Christianity. They say things about us. Right? We're called intolerant, ignorant, bigots, zealots, closed-minded, manipulative, uh, scientifically out of touch. But how about this one? How about cannibals? Cannibals. Right? We haven't heard that much today, right? There'd probably be a fair amount of evidence um, if this was true. But people did used to say this about Christians and about Christianity. Um, maybe we don't deal with this claim today, but people did in the second century, especially as the early church was growing in number, as they were growing theologically, there was this claim of being cannibals. And it was a little more common than you might think this negative claim about them. I want you all to listen carefully to this discussion between a Christian named Octavius and a pagan named uh, Caecilius who lived in the 2nd century. And this dialogue comes from a document written in the late 2nd century AD and it was called the Octavius. But before I get going, who's got the clicker for me? There we go, great. Oh, maybe it's, there we are. Okay, great. And here's the dialogue. And this was written by um, Minicius Felix, a Roman Christian apologist. So here's the dialogue. Minicius Felix was walking about Ostia with two friends, Octavius a Christian and Caecilius a pagan. When Caecilius pauses to pay respect to a pagan idol, Octavius the Christian objects. Caecilius the pagan, he says, you Christians are the worst breed to ever affect the world. You deserve every punishment you can get. Nobody likes you. It would be better if you and your Jesus had never been born. We hear that you are cannibals. You eat the flesh of your children. And in your sacred meals and meetings, you practice this. 
Octavius the Christian says, well, that story is probably based on reports that we share together a meal of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that we do. But it is not human flesh that we eat. It is bread and wine we consecrate to commemorate our Lord's death. It amazes me you give credibility to these rumors of cannibalism. You know what we're like. Keep in mind, if, if you have a child and it's a girl, but you wanted a boy, or if the child is deformed, or if you simply don't want the child, what is done? Well, you leave it outside exposed to die. Caecilius the pagan responds and says, You know that it is far more merciful to let the baby die than to bring it up in a home where the baby is not wanted. Octavius the Christian says, We do not expose our children, and you are well aware how so many of the little ones that have been left out to die have been rescued by Christians and given a home. So it's just the opposite of what you accuse us of, Caecilius. We don't consume human life. Rather, we protect it and defend it. What Octavius rightly understood is the fact that Jesus came not to consume life, but to give life. Jesus came not to take the lives of others, but to give his life to others. To give us hope, to give us freedom. To free us from the bondage and slavery of sin. And this meal, which we're going to learn about, which we're going to partake in today, is a sign and seal of this great covenant reality. For the Lord is a giver of life, and that's why his body must be broken, and that's why his blood must be shed. Because despite your best efforts, my best moral efforts, we are a group of sinful people, and we are in desperate need of a Savior. But the good news is, is that God provided one, and that's good news for us. So let's go to the Lord's Prayer before we jump into our text. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us signs and seals of your promises. We are a weak, fickle, and an independent people. And we need to be reminded that we are unified with you. We are strengthened by you, and we are nourished by you. Lord, thank you for this meal that we get to learn about and partake in today. May we taste and see that you are good. We love you. And the church says, amen, amen. Well, today, uh, we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 26, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 30. And as we look at these verses, uh, we're going to see three things. We're going to see, first, preparation for the Lord's Supper. Two, we're going to see betrayal at the Lord's Supper. And third, we're going to see the Lord's Supper itself. And as we look at these three sections together, um, we're going to see why they're important and what they mean for us today. So now as you, uh, you know where we're going this morning, if you have your Bibles, if you have your bulletins, pull them out so you can follow along and uh, read as we look at this first point, preparation for the Lord's Supper. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He, being Jesus, said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. 
And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now this Passover was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it lasted about a week. And this is where the chief priests, or the, it was the chief celebration, I should say, of Israel's faith. And this is just kind of like how we you know, celebrate Easter, and that's the chief celebration of redemption for us. So Passover was the principal celebration of God's redemption for the Old Testament Israelites and the Jews. And so this meal, this Passover, was a really big deal. It was a special meal that reminded, strengthened, and nourished the Israelites. This was a time set apart each year where the Israelites were to celebrate the fact that they were once enslaved by the Egyptians, but God, because of his great favor, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, he spared them and freed them. Now this Passover meal was more than just a remembrance of what God had done in the past to free the Israelites and to spare their lives. It was also a future foreshadowing of a sign and seal of God's saving grace that by innocent, sin-free blood, God would eternally spare and set free his people from the penalty of sin. But like most special meals, this meal took a lot of preparation. This was a special meal. And this, the preparation that happened for this meal, it wasn't for show. It was required by God so that the people of God would know how to best honor him. And the preparatory details, as we heard from our uh, responsive reading um, for the Passover meal, they're given to us in Exodus 12. But instead of quoting this text, I'm just going to highlight a few of the, the high points for us to better understand what was required for this Passover meal. So the preparations of the Passover meal required that this meal be in the first month of the year on the 14th day, that there be a, a blemish-free lamb who would have been selected and slaughtered by the priest before Passover, that there be unleavened bread that was used to signify the hurried manner in which the meal was eaten because they didn't have time to leaven the bread, that there would be four cups of wine that would represent the four promises of God that they gave to the Israelites before they left Egypt, there was also kerosene. It's a paste-like mixture of, of fruit and other various ingredients, which was used to symbolize the, the mud and clay that was used to make brick in Egypt. And it was placed in a bowl, and the bread, herbs, and bare hands were then dipped into that. And then there were bitter herbs, which were set out to remind those of the bitterness of the bondage and slavery that the Israelites experienced. And this was to be contrasted with the sweetness of deliverance in which God's people experienced. And as all these elements were chosen, consumed during the meal, the head of the household would explain the meaning of these elements. And then after the meal, after the wine had been taken, after the elements had been taken, there would be hymns of praise, probably from Psalm 113 through 18, that they would be sung. So you can see there's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot of elements which have great significance to this meal. So you can see why this would have taken extensive preparation and you could also see Jesus is going to do something really special, really important, redefining this meal. But it's also his last meal. So you can see he would have not wanted to be bothered by others, and he would have wanted to have a quiet place. And I think that's understandable, right? Because when many of us um, have special meals, maybe holiday meals, do you want solicitors coming to your door during your special holiday meal? No, <laughs> none of us want that. You know, during a, during a meal, right? No, and so Jesus wanted a quiet place, an intimate place to have this meal. 
And so you can see that as Jesus is going to redefine this meal, as he gives his final instructions to his disciples, as he redefines what was something so significant to the Israelites, it's going to be something new. He did not want to be interrupted because this is Jesus' last meal with his disciples. The Gospel of Luke tells us that it was Peter and John who were given the assignment of locating the certain man carrying a jar of water. And it was this man's upper room for whom they would use for their last meal. And as once the disciples had found the man carrying the jar of water, they made the necessary preparations for the Passover meal. And then Jesus and the disciples came. And then Jesus, dressed as a common slave, he washed the disciples' feet. And then he sat down with them. He reclined with them, probably on pillows, and they began this special meal together. Now what's important about this first point is the fact that our Lord and Savior is in complete control of what's going on. Even as he's about to be betrayed, as he's about to be stabbed in the back by one of his closest friends, he's in complete control. Because tomorrow he's going to be killed. Tonight he's going to be betrayed. But the Lord knows this and the Lord is gracious. He even says to the disciples, my time is at hand. In other words, my brothers, I'm going to die very soon. Jesus said this because he knows what's about to transpire. And even though he's about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, Jesus is calm. He's willing to serve his brothers, even his betrayer and his enemy. He's willing to take time to teach his disciples of great truth that will give them encouragement to redefine a meal that will give them hope. This is a God whom we serve, who takes time before he dies to love on his people as he redefines and goes through this beautiful Passover meal. Church, we worship a God who amidst great trials and, and, and horrible circumstances, he brings peace and meaning from the chaos that sometimes ensues us. Jesus is sovereign, he's in control. Even amidst the greatest betrayal that the earth has ever been witness to, God is in control and he is sovereign. What Satan purposed for evil, Jesus would use for good and for God's glory. And we're going to see in just a moment why this betrayal had to happen. So let's take a look at those verses 20 through 25. When it was evening... He, Jesus, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Well, is it, is it I, Lord? Is it I? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, You have said so. Jesus has just announced the unthinkable. He announces that one of his own disciples, not just a common follower of him, but one of his closest friends, is going to betray him and stab him in the back. 
And the disciples, they understandably respond in disbelief. How could this be? Could I do this? Do I have the capability of doing this? Could one of my brothers, whom I've been following Jesus with, who loves Jesus, they have the capability of doing this? Who is it? How could this be? You have to imagine in this intimate setting, I imagine the disciples' jaws just dropping and their hearts just sinking. As Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. These guys gave up their jobs, time with family, any wealth they could have accrued on their own simply to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, because they knew Jesus was a greater treasure. And now one of us is going to betray this guy? These guys witnessed God incarnate do things no man had ever seen before. They heard things from Jesus' mouth that no man had ever claimed before. And these followers of Jesus, these disciples, did things that no other religious followers of any cult had ever done before, all by the power of Jesus' name. And now after giving up so much and experiencing so much, one of them's going to stab him in the back and betray the Lord? Well, despite this confusing and bleak picture that's taking place in this upper room, prophecy is being fulfilled. Matthew 17, 22 tells us, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Matthew 20, verse 18 says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Matthew 26, verse 2 tells us, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And in Psalm 41, verse 9, we see that my own familiar friend with whom I broke bread, he lifted up his heel against me. Even though the disciples are distressed, and we can see why. And probably think things are about to get out of control. This guy who we've given our lives to. He's saying one of us is going to betray him. He's going to, be, he's going to be killed. Even though they think chaos is surrounding them right now. Confusion. We just heard from scripture that God is in control. And that prophecy is being fulfilled. And this had to happen. And this is actually good news. Each of the disciples asking Jesus because they don't know what's going on. Is it I, Lord? Could I have done this? Jesus calmly says, He who has dipped his hands in the dish with me will betray me. Meaning, it could be any of you. But then Judas, he leans in and asks Jesus the same question. He says, Is it I, Rabbi? Now Judas calls him Rabbi, not Lord. Jesus quietly responds, Judas, you have said so. What we miss here in Matthew's gospel account is the fact that Jesus was quietly acknowledging Judas Iscariot's betrayal, and the other disciples are completely clueless of what's going on, with the exception of John. In the gospel of John chapter 13, we're told, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, which is John, and he said, well, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, John asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas 
the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And so Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling Judas to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Church, do you see the grace that Jesus extends to his enemy, to his betrayer, Judas? We're not talking saving grace, salvation, but common grace to the man that will betray him, who sold him for the price of a dead slave. Jesus, before the Passover meal, began dressed as a common slave, and he got down on his knees, and he washed his disciples' feet. He washed his enemies' feet with all the gross grime that they would have come in with all the, wearing their sandals. He got down and cared for them. He served them as a servant would do. And then Jesus, instead of pointing Judas out and saying, hey guys, it's this guy. It's this guy. He's going to betray me. If you guys want to go ahead and beat him down, I'd be okay with that. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, one of you will betray me. One of you would. The reality is, is most of us probably wouldn't respond that way, would we? <laughs> Jesus just says, one of you will. Even though Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, Jesus treats him with care, respect, love, and dignity. And we have to think, how many of us would extend that same level of grace to somebody, maybe a family member, or a friend, or a church member, if we invited them over to our house to have a special meal, knowing that they have said malicious things or done malicious things against us, and then they got others involved in either these malicious acts or malicious words, and then treat them as you would your own beloved son, daughter, husband, spouse, best friend, mom or dad, whom you love dearly, to treat them the same. How many of you would do that? To treat an enemy that way? Well, the answer is most of us probably wouldn't do that. <laughs> the reality is our hearts often are dark and we would want to get back at them, whether it's face-to-face -face or behind their backs. This is not what we would do, but you see, Jesus is different. He is merciful, he's love, he's patient, he's kind, and he's gentle, even with his betrayer, even with his enemy. And the reality is, is you and I are really no different than Judas because you and I sell Jesus out for far less than 30 pieces of silver every single day. We betray Jesus when we choose to indulge our sins, when we choose to satisfy the sinful cravings of our flesh rather than trust and wait for God's provision or to ask him for help. And when we choose to indulge in that sin, we're just nailing Jesus to the cross. We're putting him there because it is our sins that held Jesus on the cross. It is your sin, it's my sin that demanded Jesus' body be broken and that Jesus' blood be spilt. We are just as responsible as Judas is for betraying Jesus because our sins held him there on that cross too. But you know what the good news is? We aren't held eternally responsible 
for what we've done, what the sin that we've inherited, but also the sins we continually do when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. So instead of receiving justice for our sins, Jesus treats us with love, with mercy, with kindness, and with gentleness, which none of you deserve and which I don't deserve. That's how your Lord treats you. And it's this kind of love which we don't deserve that leads us to repentance, that leads us to love Jesus, and that enables us to forgive those who have trespassed against us. You deserve wrath. So do I. But if you love Jesus, guess what? We get grace. Church, it's this kind of love which motivates me to continually work hard to forgive those. And I truly mean work hard because it's not easy. To forgive those who have deeply betrayed me, even in my own life. I know what it's like to be betrayed by those whom we would call a brother or a sister in Christ in a deep and a hurtful kind of way, over and over and over. I grew up in a church that treated me and my family so badly, talked about us so poorly, and gossiped about us so much, sometimes even in front of the whole church by way of prayer, that I made the decision to leave the church, which my father was a pastor to, or at the age around 12. And the reality is I had been contemplating that decision for a couple of years prior, and that tells you anything of the kind of betrayal that me and my family experienced. My brother, my mom, myself. We had people wound us unjustly. I understand betrayal. My family does. And honestly, I know many of you understand betrayal too, because I'm sure you've experienced it in deep ways. And you know what? Your Lord and Savior... Jesus understands betrayal of the worst kind. He can empathize. And that's why he said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Church, we worship a God this morning who understands the deep pain and torment of being betrayed. He knows what you've been through. He knows what you're going through now. And he's calling you to come to him to find relief, to find restoration, to find healing, and to find hope. He's available always when you call on his name. And he's reminding us in this meal, he is present for you, for me, all of the time. He goes to the cross for you and for me so that we would have access to him, to God, to find this feeling, to find this hope. And that's why this meal that we take is so beautiful, so wonderful, because it calls us to this hope that we truly have in Jesus. This meal offers us real encouragement and real hope that we can apply in our lives every day. And so let's read on. Let's find out more about this meal and this hope. Take a look with me as we look at the Lord's Supper in verses 26 through 30. Now as they, the disciples, were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
what Jesus is doing here is taking the traditional role of the head of the household and he's explaining the meaning and purpose of this beautiful meal. As he begins to speak to his disciples to break the bread, he does something incredible. He redefines this special meal that the Israelites, the Jews, have been following for centuries and centuries. And he now links this new meal, the Lord's Supper, which they are now entering into, with the celebration of the Passover in order that we might understand that he, being Jesus, is accomplishing something far greater than the Exodus that Moses led. Jesus is explaining the meaning and significance of his death, which will happen tomorrow. He's revealing that he will lead his people out of true slavery, out of true bondage, not from men just like Pharaoh, who have chains and whips, but from folks like Satan, who holds our hearts and our minds and keeps us captive with sin. By the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this cup, Jesus is revealing to his disciples that his body is going to be broken, his blood is going to be shed for them and for all of us so that we can be free from the bondage and slavery of our own sin so that you can have hope, healing, restoration. The reality is, in Christ, we don't have to sin anymore to fill ourselves up, to feel whole or to feel alive. We don't have to carry the pain and torment around that we've experienced. We don't have to pay for our sins because we have a God whose body is going to be broken, who's going to have his blood be shed so that there can be restoration, healing for you and I, so that you and I can have hope, so that your sins can be paid for. And he says, take and receive my sacrifice. And church, that's exactly what we're going to do. We are going to take, receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and we are going to be strengthened and nourished spiritually. We are going to be reminded that our Savior is present with us all the days of our life. We are going to prepare, and we're going to take this special meal together, just as Jesus and his disciples did that last night. For the Lord's Supper is a sacrament that calls our attention to the saving work of Jesus. And this meal is not only a remembrance of what Jesus has done, but it is also a means of grace whereby we are united, we are strengthened and nourished by our Lord and Savior. I told you, the story doesn't end with betrayal. No, the story ends with Jesus being surrounded by his best friends at this last meal, singing songs of praise and partaking in a meal of true encouragement and of true hope. This meal no longer only represents what God has done in the past, but also represents what Jesus is going to do to bring redemption and how he's going to accomplish it and apply it to us. This Passover was a foreshadowing of a greater reality that a Savior would one day come and save us from true bondage and sin. Because there is pain that comes in this life, but there is a God who brings healing and hope. Brothers and sisters, just as many of us have been wounded by many people, the reality is that many of us, as we carry these wounds, these memories, these experiences, we have hearts where we have not forgiven others we have hearts of stone rather than hearts of flesh towards those who have betrayed us. And I'm here to tell you I can understand that. But there can be freedom and bondage from that bondage and slavery. There can be healing 
because reality is many of us who have unforgiving hearts find it really hard to forgive those. But Jesus went to the cross so that we could, so that we could experience true healing and true restoration. I know many of you have experienced deep betrayals, whether it's from a past boyfriend, a girlfriend, maybe it's from a spouse, maybe it's from a best friend, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a boss, a pastor, or other church members. And the bondage that you carry around of that hate, that bitterness, maybe anger or deep frustration, which may be understandable, that can be removed slowly over time by trusting our Lord and Savior. You can experience freedom from these painful memories, these experiences, and these words. But that freedom is only found in Jesus Christ by the breaking of his body, by the shedding of his blood. And I'm not saying this freedom just comes instantly, right? That you don't for, that you forget or that you aren't frustrated at times. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is as you learn to trust your Lord and Savior, as you place your life in his hands, as you appreciate the reality that you are just as guilty as Judas is of putting Jesus on that cross. And yet Jesus forgives you, forgives me. You will begin to hurt a little less, hate a little less, feel the pain of those memories, experiences, and those words a little less, and you'll be able to forgive a little more. Forgiveness for us is a process, but it's a process of freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, I ask you to take a moment, ask the Lord to forgive you and your unforgiving heart towards those who've betrayed you. I'm not saying that's easy, but ask the Lord to help you do that. Because when you do, you will begin to experience more healing let me tell you, that's the same prayer I have to pray. And I know for many of you, that's the same prayer that you need to pray. Ask him to bring healing to those wounds so that you maybe begin to be able to forgive those who have trespassed against you. Because the reality is, church, the Lord's body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you to forgive you. And what a beautiful thing it is for us in gratitude, in love by this beautiful sacrifice that Jesus did for us to be motivated to see the healing to help us forgive others. That's not easy, but it's something we're being called to do. And as the Lord says as he broke his body and shed his blood, he welcomes us. Come, taste, and see that I am good. And church, that's what we're going to do this morning. As we take the elements, we are going to come, taste, and see that our Lord and Savior is good. Please pray with me. Lord, you are good. You are faithful. Lord, many of us have experienced much in this life. We live in a broken world. We live in broken families, broken churches, or broken workplaces, communities. But Lord, you came to redeem us, to save us, to bring healing and restoration. You came to, gave us, to give us hope. 
and you truly do that. I thank you, Lord, for how you've helped me in this process. And I ask you to continually help me, Lord, to further me along this process of forgiving those who have hurt me, who've hurt my family and those who are outside of those. Lord, and I pray that we would be a church who would forgive those who have hurt them, that we would begin to love them a little more and forgive them a little more. And we're only able to do that, Lord, when we ask for your help and we lean on you. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you went to the cross, that you died for us, that your body was broken and your blood was shed so that we might have hope. Thank you for this beautiful sacrifice, for this beautiful meal that we are about to partake in. We love you. And the church says, amen. This benediction comes from Numbers 6, verse 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.